Hebrews 12, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he is promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Those are potent on their own. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would pour fuel on the fire of your word. I yield my mind, my vocabulary, my tone, my body, my voice to you. Harness me. Put me under the yoke of Jesus that I may do justice to this powerful text. And Lord, as you anoint the preaching, please, please, please give ears to hear. Lord, let it go beyond the mind and sink deep into the spirit and transform us, energize us, empower us, encourage us, straighten us out if we're wayward, but bring us into proximity to your glorious throne. In Jesus' name, we pray it together. Amen. Amen. You can be seated this morning. I never like picking up in the middle of a chapter. I have a hard time reading a verse without preaching it, so I'll often skip verses so that I don't get bogged down in them, providing context, and never get to the core of my message. Let me just say this about Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews, no matter who you think it is, whether Paul or Apollos or some unnamed person, the Holy Spirit is authoring this letter to the Hebrews, and he is speaking and going in and out of warnings, exhortation, and encouragement. And you have to read with a trained eye the book of Hebrews, or you'll become very confused in various parts of this great letter. Here is warning and exhortation in the passage that we're reading. In the earlier verses in chapter number 12, he is sharing with the people about how God spoke on Sinai to the Jews, to Israel. He spoke to them. He spoke to Moses, but by proxy through Moses unto them. And when he spoke to them in their history at Sinai, it was a terrible, frightening, intense encounter with a God who at that time they were terrified of. 
It was an ominous scene there in the book of Exodus in chapter number 19 where there was a violent shaking of the mountain. There was dark cloud. There was thunder. There was lightning. There was rumbling. There was a a, a call of God to the people of Israel. Don't come too close to me. Don't touch the mountain where I'm descending to speak with Moses. Don't let your animals touch the mountain for if you touch the holy mountain, you'll die. And so it was an intense encounter. But the writer of Hebrews has been spending 11 chapters up to this point highlighting to them the better covenant, the one that is better than the one that took place at Sinai. He's been highlighting the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that he is better than any Old Testament person, that he is better than any Old Testament institution, that he is better than any Old Testament ritual or individual. And so the theme of Hebrews is the better covenant, the better covenant which you and I are partakers of through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So when we get down to the verses that we just read, I want to tell you that he's saying something about now, but he's also saying something about what's coming. And for all these weeks, we've been talking about the kingdom of God, and much of the emphasis has been on the now kingdom, kingdom living now. But this message is going to highlight a little bit of the now, a little bit of the then, but point us towards the future. And my question is, uh, I feel like I'm on an assignment to you this morning, is I'm asking you this, are you holding on to things that God has determined to shake? Because if you're holding on to things that he has determined to shake, you'll never keep them and you'll miss the things that will remain. The things that he has declared in this passage are things that cannot be shaken and will abide forever. And so this morning, I'm a little tanked up. So let's get into the word together. Let's begin with our kingdom saturated reality. Our kingdom saturated reality. The author opens up and he highlights the invisible domain around us. He says this, in juxtaposition, in in contrast to Mount Sinai, he says, you've come to Mount Zion. And he does it again, he says, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. I will not be bogged down here, but what he is giving us here is uh, different descriptors of the domain of the people who live in life in new covenant with God. In other words, we're not under the law. We're not to be intimidated by this great and glorious God who at Sinai terrified the people with his ominous presence. But we have come to something better. We have come to a, a kingdom fulfillment through the king himself, Jesus Christ. And we are moving towards the fullness of inheritance described as that heavenly Jerusalem, the Mount Zion reality, the city of the living God. And all of these are descriptors of the reality of the kingdom, that we are not ultimately citizens of any uh, earthly country. We have citizenship here, but that's not our ultimate identity. That we are people who've been translated from one dominion into another, one domain into another, one kingdom into another. And that kingdom is typified by the throne of God, which will be established through Christ in the new Jerusalem. And so when we're looking at this, we are reminded right off the bat that ultimately where you have your address, whether it's in Georgia or some other place, that is not your permanent dwelling place. We are not, most of all, earthly citizens. We are people who are living and belonging to a domain that is all around us, but it gets even deeper. The end of verse number 22, we're not alone. We are um, associated with an invisible realm of other heavenly creatures. 
The Bible says in verse 22 that we are part of this Mount Zion reality, part of the city of the living God, but the countless angels are among us. The Bible describes them as innumerable angels in festal gathering. Very quickly, lest you think I'm running to extremes. We don't worship angels. We don't seek encounters with angels, but we also do not deny what the Bible says about angels, that angels are created by God. Here they're described as being innumerable. They are assigned by God to work his will on the earth, and scripture lends itself to the understanding that these angels are assigned in particular to benefit and protect and defend the church of the living God. And so we see them all throughout scripture, scripture, not as floating around on a cloud and playing minor chords on harps, but being warriors of God and messengers of God and defenders of the church. They may uh, appear in a human form at times, but most of the time they are ministering spirits and they are invisible. I'll say something at the risk of sounding like a kook. They're in the room with us right now. The angels of God are in the room with us right now. You say, Jeff, what are you doing? Uh, What are they doing? And I would just say, I don't know, ask God. But I do know this, that they have a special interest in what we do. And if the enemy would dare to come against this gathering to interrupt the word of God, to continue to lie and steal and kill and destroy, then the angels of God must combat that on our behalf so that this can truly be a sanctuary. But here they're described in such a way that says they are innumerable and they're described as being in a festal gathering. It talks about joy. It talks about triumph. It talks about celebration. The angels aren't sad. The angels aren't down in the mouth. The angels aren't complaining. The angels aren't murmuring. The angels, if if they're here now, they've come from the presence of the Son of God in whom is everything that is perfect and good and glorious and holy and right. And they are confident that his triumph will be made manifest on earth. And, And the writer of Hebrews is telling us this, that our kingdom saturated reality includes the presence and the ministry and the company of angels. See, God's glory is just too big and too wonderful just to be entrusted to the human race, the angelic realm will glorify him for all of eternity too. It's not just us down here on earth. It's not just the angels, but our kingdom saturated reality also includes the gloriously redeemed who have gone before us. Look in verse number 23. We have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and later in verse 23 to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What a beautiful, beautiful phraseology. I confess to you, I'm not a Greek scholar. I do know enough to probably make me dangerous, get me in trouble from time to time. But when we see that word assembly, it is that word where most of us are familiar with, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the gathered ones. It might even be properly translated church, the church of the firstborn, Christ being the firstborn, of course, in the sense of the heir, the father's sole inheritor. But we are called joint heirs with Jesus And so therefore the church of the firstborn not only directly relates in all of its glory to he who was the firstborn among the dead, who is Jesus Christ our Lord, but all of us have been brought in as joint heirs with Jesus. And when you see that term firstborn in scripture, it's usually referring to our inheritance in Christ. And those that have gone on before us, they're described as the souls of those who've been made perfect. 
They are there in glory now, experiencing the fullness of their inheritance. They are worshiping by sight, the same one we are worshiping by faith today. They have no questions. They have no doubts. They have no fears. They have no sins. They have no sicknesses. We toil. We struggle. We strive. We are in the midst of warfare. But they have been delivered, and they have gone on before us. Perhaps that is what the writer was referring to when he spoke in part of the great cloud of witnesses that is watching us live out our race, those who witness to us by their lives, we are part of an unbroken, seamless body of Christ, part of it on earth and part of it in heaven. So my friend, remember this, I feel a debt. I do. I live with a sense of debt. Not only that my life might belong to the Son of God for all that he is and all that he has done for me, but I also feel an accountability and a debt in my generation to perpetuate the work and the glory of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel that other generations pass down to my generation. All of us have a stewardship of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we may make him known to all who have not believed, that we may not sit on the sidelines, but we may enter the battlefield and come forth and say, as they did it in the generation before me and have passed on to the fullness of their inheritance, I will do the same. And also, the holy judge above us. Here comes an ominous tone. When I think of God as judge, I, I, I don't necessarily feel glib. I, I, when I think about him as judge, I don't automatically relax. All casualness kind of skirts away from me. And I think that oftentimes in a, a generation where we don't want to offend people and we don't want to um, risk coming off overbearing or intrusive, we kind of skirt the issue of God as judge, but uh, we can't do that if we're going to be Bible people. Let's remember this, that ultimately each individual in this room will stand in a given account in some manner for his or her life. We will give an account. The Father says that he has given all judgment, entrusted all judgment to the Son. But there is no distinction between how the Son might judge you and how the Father might judge you. Jesus will carry out the judgment. That is what we were told in Scripture. But ultimately, we are being judged by the holy God who sees perfectly, who judges righteously, who looks penetratingly deep into the recesses of who we are. He not only judges our actions, but the motives that, that sourced those actions. And so it is not a moment for me just to say, oh, won't that be great? No, if you ask me, I'd probably avoid it if I could, but I can't. And you can't either. And so part of the kingdom of God is this that we will ultimately give an account for how we lived out our citizenship in the kingdom. And that means I will have to give an account for whether I was more of a, a, king, a citizen of the United States 20th, 21st century uh, Christianity, or was I a citizen in my obligations, in my responsibilities, in my aspirations, my motivations, in my desires, in my commitments? Was I living for a little K kingdom or was I sold out for the big K kingdom? And I will give an account for that. And you will too. And, and God doesn't grade on a curve. Because what we tend to do is we tend to find somebody who's not quite living up to the level we are and we compare ourselves to her or to him. We say, I'm doing pretty good. But ultimately, we're not afforded that. But lest we tremble too long, lest we despair too deeply, lest we grow inwardly fearful and morbidly introspective, look at verse number 24, because it's not only the holy judge that is part of this reality, but the high priest who is beside us. You see, my friends, the word says, 
that we have come not only to Mount Zion, not only to innumerable angels, not only to the assembly of the firstborn, and not only to God the judge, but we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If, if we are to tremble at God as judge, we are, to, we are to triumph in Christ as mediator. That means this, for those of us that are in Christ, the dread of the judgment, the sense of, oh no, where will we be after the judgment? That's been taken away. For those of us that are in Christ, we'll give an account for the works done in our body. We will receive a reward or we will lose a reward, but Jesus Christ has already mediated the verdict. The verdict is that we have been justified before a holy God. That means Jesus Christ paid the penalty. The penalty's been paid in full, so we don't have to, to dread that aspect of it. But in conversely, the fact that we are justified, the fact that we are pardoned, the fact that his blood has wiped away forever all of our sin, that doesn't allow us to go scot-free living in flippancy saying, I got my ticket punched to heaven, it doesn't matter how I live. Quite the opposite. Because we've been born again, because we've been saved, because we've been redeemed, we say, I must live this life for the glory of the one who has rescued me and redeemed me. The Bible here speaks of the blood of Jesus. It, it mentions that it is a better testimony than that of Abel. If we had time, we'd go back to Genesis 4, and we would see that Cain took his brother out in the field when his own offering to God was rejected, but Abel's was accepted. And Cain killed his brother in the field. And God came to him, and he said to Cain, he said, the blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the ground. What was it crying for? It was crying for justice. It was crying for revenge. It was crying for judgment. It was crying out against Cain. That is the old covenant that the blood of Cain was so typified and going into the ground and the ground was cursed and it brought forth thorns and briars. I mean, it's amazing to me that in the very first family, we had brother attacking brother. That blood cried out for vengeance, but we are told in the new covenant that the blood of Jesus has a greater testimony. Because the blood of Jesus doesn't cry out for vengeance. It cries out for mercy. It cries out for grace. It cries out in compassion. It cries out in deliverance. It cries out in freedom. It cries out in salvation for all who will trust in the shed blood of Christ. That is the kingdom that you and I belong to. And I praise him this morning. So what do we do with all this? How do we think? How do we respond? Well, let's go down into verses 25 and 27. Because this is the now moving us toward the future. We cannot ignore these verses. Oh, that I had the ear of the entire nation this morning to preach what I'm about to preach because it's coming. It's coming. It can't be avoided. It will not be denied. I can't pinpoint it on a calendar, nor can you, but I want to promise you something on the authority of God's word. There's a shaking coming to this world, to the entire planet. Watch what the word does this morning. Our kingdom-anchored awareness shows us this warning from God. Verse 25, the author is writing people who are vacillating between moving forward with Jesus and regressing back into a legalistic Judaism. And he says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? The author is highlighting some events in Israel's history. He's speaking about the warning of Moses. God spoke to Moses, the leader, the redeemer of the Israelites, the man of the earth, so to speak, in this passage. And the Lord spoke and said, warn the people. 
And so Moses warned Israel, and I'm going to take you back into the book of Exodus and just provide some context. You can write down the reference, but these verses will not be on the screen. But I want you to hear uh, from Exodus 19 and 20. What did the people do when God warned them at Sinai? When he gave them the law, the commandments, and so forth, what did they do? Did they run in joy towards him? Did they celebrate him? Did they find relief? No, none of those things. But watch this. Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on Mount Sinai and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Verse 18. Now Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kin. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. There's the shaking on earth. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Just pause for a moment with me. So this is the scene. Moses, the human leader of redeemed Israel, having come out of Egypt, Moses leads them to the place where the law will be given. And God did not come turning the other cheek. And God did not come taking children into his lap. And God did not come with blessing and in the sense of uh, accommodating easy words. God said, don't touch the mountain because my holiness is here. You touch it, you die. And when he did come down, it was fire and darkness and trumpets blaring, angelic shofars blaring. It was a loud and frightening scene. And the Bible says that the mountain shook and shook and shook. And then the people consequently shook themselves. They feared and they trembled. This is the essence of the law. Verse 21 in Exodus 19, the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and, and look and many of them perish. And also let the priest uh, who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Do you get it? The old covenant was stay away, I'm holy. Stay away, I'm holy. You can't come on your own. Stay away, I'm holy. Verse 23, and Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to them, uh, said to him, to Moses, go down and bring Aaron with you. Do not let the priest or the people break through to come to me, lest I break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now watch this, Exodus 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They did not want to hear what the Lord had to say. You flash, flash forward to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 12, back to where we left off. And the warning from God is this to those vacillating people who were somewhere caught between Judaism and going back and Christ and moving all the way forward. He said this, here's the warning. If the people of Israel refused Moses who spoke to them on earth, how much sore punishment do you think there'll be if we refuse God as he speaks from heaven? See, our generation needs to hear that, my friends. I'm just a man and I'm in a, I'm in a skin suit. I'm flesh and blood. I'm just a mouthpiece. I'm one of hundreds of thousands across the globe today opening up God's word and exhorting people. But ultimately, we have to recognize that God's word is God speaking to man on earth today. And so we look at the word of God, and when God says, hear my son, 
When, when the Lord says, honor my son, bow before my son, I've exalted my son, then we answer the question, can there be other ways to God? The answer is no. And if we refuse the one who speaks from heaven, expect the sore punishment. It's not only in this issue of salvation, it's in this issue of how we live our lives, what we do with our lives, how we steward our lives, our relationships that we have, what we do with our time and our money and our energies and our abilities, what we do with our life purpose. We must hear him who speaks from heaven because he speaks to all of those things. And yet the world is speaking to us and the world is begging for our loyalty and the world is begging for the best of our resources and the world is saying, dabble in Jesus, but immerse yourself in me, the world. And that's what's happening to a generation. It's happening in our culture and it's happening in our churches that we come in and we get anesthetized on Sunday with a little feel-good moment of spiritual things, but then we dart out into a world and we immerse ourselves in a culture and we refuse him who speaks from heaven to these things. So Jeff, what's the problem with the United States? Let me just tell you, the problems are epidemic. I'm gonna tell you where I believe they started. They started with us. They started 50 years ago or more when the church stopped being the church. We can blame the government all we want, but friends, I have a feeling that when judgment begins first at the house of God, we must recognize that according to the scripture, God put us to be the salt and the light in the world. So if the world is flavorless and the world is dark, who did he call to be the salt and the light? We gotta hear him from heaven. Say, Jeff, this is condemning, this is overwhelming. No, my friends, this is an open door of opportunity for us to inspect our own hearts and say, I wanna hear him who speaks from heaven. Speak to me, O God, about my life. Speak to me, O Lord, about how I'm living. Speak to me about the future. Friends, I'm so grateful today that he is speaking, but there's gonna come a time where he stops. And that's the moment I wanna warn us about. Look at the witness of God in verse 26. The writer of Hebrews is describing what I just read to you out of the book of Exodus. And he says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. In Haggai chapter number two, verse number six and verse number 21, that's where he is drawing this reference from, Haggai two, verse six and 21. And God has promised that there will be a shaking of every created and visible tangible, material matter in the whole universe. That God is going to shake the cosmos. And I'm gonna tell you in a moment why he's going to do it. But I need to break through into our thinking for a moment. Holy Spirit, please break through our thinking right now. Friends, we are spinning. We are whirling dervishes, spinning, moving in frenetic activity. We are going from thing to thing and worry to worry and activity to activity and opportunity to opportunity and hollow promise to hollow promise and person to person and this to that and then back again. We are moving and scurrying and hurrying and worrying and we're, we're searching for something. And, and we're, we're looking, I'm talking about in general, especially I think of my, my beloved United States of America, that people are looking for God, but they're looking for him in godless sources. They're looking for him in hedonism. They're looking for him in pluralism. They're looking for him in socialism or capitalism or communism, feminism, racism. They're looking through all these isms, these systems of belief, misogynism. And they're saying, I've got to find where I can connect. I've got to find my identity. 
They're looking for it in bigger houses and faster cars and nicer bodies and more beautiful mates and higher education and higher elevation. They're looking in this world for things that that they believe will bring to them the soul satisfaction. And yet when they attain the next thing on their list, they find that it came up empty and devoid of power to bring them the satisfaction that they wanted. Why? Because they're chasing the things that will be shaken. See, my God tells me that in the end, most of the material created order that characterizes the world now, most of it, at the very least, will be recreated. Some of it will be destroyed forever. I... I like to preach happy messages, and believe it or not, the end of this bad boy is going to be happy. But for right now, I want to remind us of something that I don't think we're hearing anymore. That all of the stuff that our culture thrust before our eyes and says, you need this. You can't be happy without this. Or you can be happier with it. They plague my children. They plague your grandchildren. They... they, they propped up things and these, these man-made things that promise so much and deliver so little. And what God says is, I've shaken the world once. I'm going to shake it again, but it's going to be different. It's going to be more intense. It's going to be more comprehensive. I'm going to shake everything. Not only the earth, but the heavens. And it speaks of the cosmos, the entire created order. Is there any New Testament on that that we can bring to bear? Yes. Jesus said it very simply. The Lord capsulizes massive doctrines in very simple statements, and he said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away. (laughs) We just breeze right past that, right? Because we've heard it's heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We go straight to my words will not pass away. We say the word of God is forever. The word of God is perfect. The word of God is inspired. The word of God is infallible. The word of God will, you know, and and I, I hit those same points myself, but we pass quickly over. Heaven and earth will pass away. It's going to be gone. So where's it going to go? I don't know. It's above my pay grade. I promise you, I have no idea. But the Lord Jesus Christ said it's, it's on a, it's on a hourglass and the hourglass has been tipped and the sands are getting fewer and fewer. Uh, In the book of Revelation, chapter number 6, and this is yet to happen. This is coming. Verse number 12, the angel opened the sixth seal. I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. That's on earth. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a wind. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now listen, don't let that read like um, some morbid Hallmark card. This is inspired truth. This is God saying, this is what's going to happen. John, I'm going to show it to you. I want you to write it down, and I want all generations of my people to know that there's a back end, there's a hard stop to planet Earth and life as we know it. And we don't think about that. The younger you are, the less you think about it. The danger is when you get older is that you might think, okay, well, it doesn't matter because I'm going to escape it. Well, it matters to those you're leaving behind. Second Peter chapter number 3, verse number 10. Here we go. It doesn't get more explicit than this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
and the heavens will pass away, and it's even described, with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. That's planets and stars and moons. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's not just the earth and and the people in it, but it's together. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of the which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for what? For a new heaven and a new earth in which will righteousness reign. And so what we're being told is this. Hey, he's not abandoning you. He's not going to leave you as a homeless orphan. He's just dealing with all of the marred, fallen, cursed existence, time and space and matter and the cosmos and the planetary, celestial and terrestrial. God says it's all cursed because of the fall. It's not fit for my people for all of eternity. I'm going to burn it all up and I'm going to bring something new in which you're going to dwell in righteousness forever and ever and ever. And then he says this. He says, since this is true, Live holy, live in righteousness, live in godliness. If I can capsulize it in another statement from Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And instead we seek all the other things. So let's get down to the end because up to this point, all we've done is gotten startled by a screaming preacher. But let's look at, listen, I I just preach this way. Somebody asked me, I get asked every now and then, why do you yell so much? It's like, that's just the way I preach. I'm going to yell while I can. Too many soft guys in the pulpit these days. I'm just going to be loud. Amen. I'm just passionate, man. I mean, I I can't help it. Now, I'm not like this at home. Amy, pass the potatoes. (laughs) That's not how I roll in the house because I want to be able to go home at night. But I'm going to tell you something. What we're passionate about. I don't think there's any nobility in suppressing that from time to time. So if I yell too much for you, I forgive you. (laughs) Here's where we talk about what do we do with a message like this. And I don't even have to come up with something. It's right there, verse 28 and 29. Here's our kingdom-worthy response. Overwhelming gratitude. Overwhelming gratitude. Verse 27, he told us yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Let me just hit that real quick. This is what God says he's doing. And I'm going to promise you something. If you'll be discerning, you'll see it's already begun. God says that it is his activity to be shaking Shaking what? Everything that is. It all belongs to him. He can shake what he wants. And he is shaking the universe, the cosmos, the realm of humanity. He's shaking it. He's disturbing it. He's aggravating it. He's provoking it. He is literally reorienting it. 
He's doing it in earth. He always has been. Since the fall in the garden where chaos entered into the natural realm, where everything that God made good and perfect was marred by willing rebellion of Adam and Eve, and we have done just the same thing in every successive generation. We have marred what God has made so that most of the world today are things that will never remain. Systems of belief, material things, pride and ego and fame and infamy, political establishments, rulers, uh, monuments, relics and shrines, and the sense that these are the most important people, these are the most important times, this is the most important belief. All of the scientific knowledge and things that sometimes vault themselves in the, in the face of God and dares us to believe the word of God by faith. He's shaking them all. He's shaking away dead religious traditions. He hates those as much as he hates the straight up lies of the devil because they're one and the same. And so God will take his hand and he will shake up. And now listen, it's easy for us to say amen to that when we're thinking in the macro version. But let me tell you, he's shaking you. He's shaking your church. He's shaking your community. He's shaking your faith. Why? Because there's some junk in our faith that's not going to remain. It doesn't belong. It's not moored or anchored in revelatory truth. And so we import all of these things. They're like, did you ever run through the woods as a kid and you get those little hitchhikers on you? Those little things, what are they called? They're called hitchhikers, aren't they? Y'all are a bunch of suburbanites. For those of us that ran in the woods, you get those things, they stick on you and you get back home and you're picking them off. It's like that in the religious world. We run through a religious world and we get all of these things sticking on us. And God says, just stop there. I'm gonna shake those things off of you. And what he wants to leave us with is the organic gospel of Jesus Christ, New Testament faith. He wants to leave us with hearts that are ready to worship and and honor and serve. Hearts of love, hearts like Jesus. I'm going to tell you, it's been quite a journey for me the last decade where I realized how much of what I believed to be my relationship with God was nothing more than empty luggage. I carried it around and thought it was holding good things. And then when I'd set it down and open it, there's nothing of value in it. God says, drop your baggage. And sometimes we won't. He says, I'm going to shake it out of you. It indicates the removal, verse 27, of the things that are shaken. Why? So that the things that aren't shaken may remain. We don't like to be shaken. We like comfortable Jesus, happy Jesus, accommodating Jesus. Pleasant Jesus, Sunday 45-minute Jesus, or if you go to church here, two-hour Jesus. We, we, we like that kind of Jesus. We like Jesus who's a Southern conservative. Yeah. I mean, we, we, that's, that's the kind of Jesus we like because he doesn't threaten our little K kingdom. He doesn't shake anything. I pray that God will shake you and not stop. Because the only reason he shakes us is to dislodge the stuff that isn't going to remain anyway. And he's got to shake us regularly because we're all the time picking up stuff that just isn't going to last. I know that he's doing that in our church. I love what he's doing 
If I craved comfort, I would never be helping to lead in what's going on here. I, I, I just wouldn't do it. This is one of the most thrilling seasons I have ever had in my Christian journey. It is also the single most challenging. Why? Shaking. Shaking the things that don't belong so that the things that must belong will remain. So if he's shaking your life and some things are getting dislodged, some relationships where you have to say goodbye, some creature comforts that are not going to be a part of your next chapter, some locations, some vocations, some traditions. Friends, we, we need to get honest before the Lord and recognize that we presume to be entitled to our comfort zones. Comfort zones are presumed by most, but promised to none. And yet when ours gets touched, the tendency is to cry foul. And if we will get still and small, we'll discern, no, that's God shaking off some stuff that doesn't matter because I need to travel lightly. And so how do we respond back to verses 28 and 29 with overwhelming gratitude? Look at what the writer says. I mean, he's just taken us to scary Sinai, but then he's taken us to the, the, the high priest uh, presence where we're atoned for. He's saying there's another shaking coming, and he doesn't want us to be afraid. He says, be grateful. He says, therefore, let us be grateful. Why? Because we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Oh, I'm going to get happy here. Oh, I'm already getting sick of the election season. I am so sick of it. I don't care who you vote for. You've got to vote for somebody. If you're going to be a, an appropriate steward of your citizenship, you're going to have to vote for somebody. I'm not happy with any of them. So it's like, do I want to drink the arsenic or take the cyanide? But ultimately, let me just tell you, it's not going to be Democratic or Republican or even American in the kingdom that we belong to. Somebody's going to be in the White House next year or in, in, in January. Somebody do. Doesn't matter. It matters down here in a certain arena, of course. But what I'm saying is this, that kingdom's going to be shaken to nothing eventually. And so is Putin's kingdom. So is Iran's kingdom. So is ISIS kingdom. So is China's kingdom. So is Venezuela. So is Cuba. It's all going down. It's all coming down. And every Western citadel of politics or education or all of the osophies and the isms, they're kingdoms that will be shaken. But my kingdom and your kingdom, it'll never be shaken. Why? Because it's an everlasting, eternal king who sits on the throne. Give him glory. Give him praise. Hallelujah. So our inward response is gratitude. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm a part of your kingdom. Lord, forgive me for murmuring and complaining or getting obsessed with the little K when I'm part of the big K kingdom. Lord, thank you. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, ingratitude is the first step towards apostasy. An ungrateful heart is the first step towards apostasy. Gratitude, purpose gratitude will solve most of your problems, friends. It really will. Fully engaged worship, by the way, is also part of our kingdom-worthy response. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. If the inward response is gratitude, the outward response is worship. 
It says, let us offer it. That means that gratitude for, towards Jesus that soaks our hearts is not content to remain locked in our heart. It's not just about you and your private relationship with God through Christ. It's really not. That's the, that's the, that's the origin of it, but it is to proceed from that and it's to express itself in reverence and awe and worship of the one who has made all things possible to you. And so that's not just on Sundays. I love what we're doing here. I love it, I love it, I love it. Oh, I wanna do it more. I, I, I love gathering with you, but listen, what about the other six days of the week? What about all the other opportunities? I don't want to just get my groove on here on Sundays and then be Mr. Sourpuss on Monday through Saturday. I want to worship him. I mean, he's as worthy to worship tomorrow morning when you're stuck in Atlanta traffic as he is right now. Amen. Say, Jeff, you won't let us go. I feel like I'm stuck in traffic right here. Well, just start cultivating a grateful heart. Amen. Worship. Say, worship seems impractical. I'm more about serving. Well, if you serve right, it is worship. (laughs) you don't have to choose. But the best service emanates from a heart full of worship because it affects deeply the motivation. Uh, I'm just going to say this, and then I'm going to move on because I don't have time to hit it. Um, As we are moving forward, and on March 13th, you're going to see probably 60 people that will be walked on the length of this stage at various times as we introduce you to various leaders and servants here in this church. I'm just going to ask you one question. Are you serving the body of Christ at Meta? Are you serving? Because friends, this is your covenant family. This is your faith family. I want to serve you. But I know also I can be benefited by by your service to me. And so if I'm taking care of your needs and you're taking care of my needs, then Jesus is pleased to bless us both because neither one of us are self-focused. And so we must serve one another and serve our community. Um, Brother Tom is here, and my heart was bursting when I thought I wasn't able to go a couple of weeks ago, and the elders went over to his house and prayed on him a few days before they, they sewed him back up on the operating table, and they said, we can't do anything with your cancer. I'm thinking, my friends, the body of Christ comes together, lays hands on him, anoints him with oil, calls on the healer, and says, Jehovah Rapha, heal our brother. That's service. There's people that are making food right now to serve those that are going to be meeting later. There's people changing diapers right now. God bless you in the nursery. Thank you for serving our babies. Thank you for serving our children, Pastor Keith and Pastor Christopher. Thank you for serving out in the lobby. Thank you for serving some of you this morning at 9 a.m. in a prayer meeting. Thank you for serving here in this building and those of you that will serve out from this building. This is an aspect of our worship. Worship isn't a pleasant thought towards God. Worship is a life lived out on an altar. And then ultimately, and I'm done, worship team, come on up. Ho. All right, Peter, you just hang out with me and me and you will go at it together, bro. (laughs) I want Peter to come sit on the front row with me from now on because he and I are the loudest people in the church during worship. (laughs) Peter, I will save you a seat. Somebody told me the other day, I heard loud shouting. I didn't know if it was Jeff or Peter. I said, it was both of us, amen. Complete surrender is the last point. Listen, when we're talking about our kingdom-worthy response, I don't have the the verbiage. I I just can't communicate it. I can't articulate. I just need the Holy Spirit to make this real. Our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? It means his presence, his holiness, his glory. It envelops everything that we lay before him. It speaks of the 
fire coming down on the whole burnt offering, the sacrifice that the Israelites would would offer. And everything would be consumed, all of it for the glory of God. That is the call on my life as a Christian, not as a pastor. I never preach another message. The call on my life is, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I'm going to live my days in full surrender. It's easy to say the headlines of that, but it's actually lived out in the fine print. It's lived out in how I am living my life. And friends, you have been bought, you have been purchased, you have been sealed, you have been baptized, you have been filled, you have been commissioned for a a monumental, eternal mission and purpose. You are significant because of your identity in Jesus Christ. And as we live out and walk out that identity, even when we stumble, even when we flail, even when we're not sure which direction to go, Job, the most righteous man of his day, said, I go to the left and he's not there. I turn to the right and he's not there. I move forward. Where is he? Behind me, I don't know. And then Job comes to his sense and he says, but he knows where I am. And when he proves me, I will come forth as gold. That means if we will lay down the gold of our life on the altar of his glory, his fire will fall, purify what we offer, and bring great glory to him. That's what he's called you to do.